Hey, thanks for joining us. Did you know that in England, they have a book that is called the Doomsday Book? It's not a new book. It's actually been around for a thousand years, just about a thousand years. Back in 1085, England was conquered by a man named William the Conqueror. And once he had control of this island nation, he needed to know um, who lived in it. So they did a census. They basically took a survey of the land, a very detailed survey of every man, woman, child, cow, pig, donkey, horse, sheep, um, how much land each person owned. And part of the reason why he did this was because once he had conquered the land, he needed to defend the land and he needed to hire some extra army uh, people, some mercenaries to protect his land from other invaders. And of course, if you're hiring an army to protect your land, you also need to pay that army. And how do you pay for the army? Through taxation. Well, how do you get taxation accurate? You need to know who's living there. And thus the survey that was taken after he conquered uh, England in 1085. And the census, the actual book that was compiled and put together, came to be known as the Doomsday Book. And it was called the Doomsday Book uh, several years after that um, because it was considered to be like the last judgment of God, unalterable. And so it just took on this nickname of the Doomsday Book. And you can look it up. Here's a picture of it that you can see. And uh, it's a very large book. It's a very old book. But essentially, it's a census. And it was a census that had everything to do with taxation. And throughout much of history, when, when a census is taken in a country or in a land, for most of the people, it is never looked on as something that's good. It's actually looked on as something that is... Um, that leads to poverty, that leads to more taxation for the people who can't afford the taxes, which leads to more poverty. And so most people tend to not look favorably upon a census, particularly in today's day and age, people that are not properly or legally registered in a country really hate the idea of a census being taken or what we call them now is, is a survey, a national survey. It's the same thing. And Luke starts off the story of the birth of Jesus by talking about a census, a census that was taken while Augustus was the emperor. And then Luke mentions Quirinius, who was the Syrian governor. Now, it's interesting to note that before Rome had conquered the region of Israel, they had been warring with Syria and Syria had been the dominant power in the region at that time. And so the Jews were having a hard time with Syria. Then they get conquered by Rome. And then what Augustus does is he puts this man named Quirinius as his kind of puppet governor overseeing the Jewish people in that land. So there is a lot of pain and a lot of animosity that is going on during the time of this census. It was not good news for the Jews of the region. It was not good news for Joseph and Mary. You can be sure that they did not want to travel from Nazareth down to Jerusalem or Bethlehem um, for this census. That was a fairly long journey for them. And so the census was a journey of an oppressed couple who identified with an oppressed people. And this is the setting that Luke is establishing for us 
when we come to Luke chapter 2, and he tells the birth story of Jesus. And it's within the setting of this census, this this oppressive uh, form of taxation, under the nose of the Roman governor, the Roman emperor, and the Syrian governor, God is going to show up, and he is going to shake things up right under their noses during the time of this census. So I want to read for us from Luke 2, verses 1 to 7 today, reading from the uh, New Living Translation. So let's just read what Luke tells us about the birth. We're going to look at all of chapter 2, but I want to read these first few verses for us. At the time of the Roman Emperor Augustus, he decreed a census should be taken throughout the Roman Empire. And this was the first census taken when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Everyone returned to their ancestral towns to register for the census. And because Joseph was a descendant of King David, he had to go to Bethlehem in Judea, David's ancient home. He traveled there from the village of Nazareth in Galilee, and he took Mary with him, his fiancée, who was now obviously pregnant. And while they were there, the time came for her baby to be born. She gave birth to her first child, a son, and she wrapped him snugly in strips of cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no lodging available for them. And I think this is the quintessential Christmas scene being played out uh, over and over again, year after year in churches all over the world. And it's this sign of the manger and we get so caught up in, in the manger scene. And yet, I think we need to revisit the story and look at the setting that Luke is, is, is putting forth here. He is starting off with a political setting. He's talking about Augustus and Quirinius. He's saying when these two people were in power, and I know that there are, there are historians who look at the challenges and the difficulties of the exact dates and timing of all of this, and uh, you can look up some of that on your own. I don't think it's, it's really worth fussing about because Luke is setting forth the stage that there was a census that happened. It was at this time. And the importance of it is actually the, the political scene that he's doing. If you remember back in Luke 1.5, he is saying when Herod was king, um, God spoke to Zechariah. Now he is saying when Jesus was born, these are the political powers that were at play. And I think what Luke is showing is that uh, the advent of Jesus at his coming, the political scene is going to be shaken up. It's not an accident that Luke is, is referencing the Roman emperor and the Syrian governor. He's, he's addressing, in some ways, the politics of Jesus. See, politics isn't just some theoretical thing that happens with a bunch of people in some faraway place in a parliament building. Politics actually uh, affects the everyday lives of thousands and thousands of people. And what you're going to see throughout Luke's gospel is how Jesus confronts uh, political systems that keep people oppressed, many people oppressed, so that a few can benefit from that system. And Jesus is always going to confront politics when politics are keeping people uh, oppressed, when keeping people marginalized, keeping people in bondage. And this is as true for Western democracy as it is for any monarchy or any dictatorship throughout all of the ages. 
this is a political scene. This is not a serene, quiet, um, peaceful manger scene that's on all of our Christmas cards. This is a very political statement that Luke is making with the birth of Jesus. And so in the verses that I just read in chapter 2, uh, verses 1 to 7, we're introduced to the manger. And uh, again, uh, the quintessential image of, of Christmas cards, of, of nativity scenes. And we spend so much time fixated on a few pieces of wood that are nailed together. Or we talk about the inn that they couldn't have access to. And uh, it's just poor wording and it's created an image that's really not accurate for the setting of the day. But I don't want us to get fixated on the manger or on the inn. But why Luke is even bothering to mention the manger in the first place? Why does he take so much effort to describe it? Well, if you go back to verse 12 uh, in this chapter, um, sorry, if you go ahead to verse 12 in this chapter, the shepherds are told that when you go, you will find the baby in a manger. And that is a sign for them. The manger is a sign for the shepherds of what they were told by the angel. So the importance of the manger is that it's fulfilling what the angel had told to the shepherds, where they would find the Messiah, where they would find the Savior, where they would find the Lord, and that he would be wrapped in cloth. Like uh, in, verse, in verse 7, we read that Mary wrapped him snugly in strips of cloth and laid him in the manger. There's another sign that's at play here. There is another time in the life of Jesus when he is going to be wrapped in cloth and laid in something. And so this verse here, verse 7, is pointing us all the way to the end of Jesus' life. In Luke 23, verse 53, where we read that Joseph took Jesus' body, wrapped it in cloth, and laid it, not in a manger, but in a tomb. And I think there's this wonderful imagery that Luke is creating when he introduces us to the baby Jesus and the sign of the manger, and that that manger is not only a sign of the birth of the Lord or the Messiah, but also of his impending and coming death. So even in his birth, we are connected to his death and the significance of what that would mean for all of us. And then as you read through um, the next few verses, Verses 8 to 20, we're introduced to the shepherds. And it's the shepherds that the angel comes to. Don't forget, Luke has just mentioned Augustus and Quirinius, the Roman emperor and the Syrian governor. These are important people of the day. These are the people that should be in the know. If there's a new um, political figure that is coming into the region, then these are the people who would know about it. But the message of God's kingdom and His coming, His advent, does not go to the important people, to the officials, to the powerful people, uh, the political leaders. It's the everyday, regular, in fact, you could even argue the marginalized, outcast, uh, untrusted shepherds who are in the fields. And the angel comes to them. And there's something hugely significant about God speaking to them instead of to the religious leaders or to the political leaders or to the business leaders in the region at that time. 
He is speaking to the people. And one of the curious things that Luke does throughout his gospel is he references the people over and over and over again, and often in contrast to the religious leaders or the political leaders uh, in various scenes and settings. And so you get this sense from Luke that God is very much a God who is for the people. And it's, it's good for us to pay attention to that. And here's this uh, wonderful verse to the shepherds where the angel says to them, the Savior, the Messiah, the Lord has been born today in Bethlehem, the city of David, chapter 2, verse 11. And this is the only place where we see these three descriptors of Jesus play side by side, Savior, Messiah, and Lord. And I would, I would encourage you to, to see what Luke is doing in this explanation of Jesus as Savior. Because I think we've really narrowed down the concept of Jesus as Savior to just simply uh, saving people from their sins so that they could go to heaven. And salvation in the gospel is so much more than just um, something that has to do with eternity in some other state. And I want to give you an example. In Acts 4.12, Peter is speaking to the religious leaders, also written by Luke, by the way, this volume 2. Peter says to the religious leaders that have, that have arrested them, salvation um, is found in no other name other than the name of Jesus. And we tend to think, oh, yeah, Peter is talking about uh, going to heaven and, and being with God forever. And yet the whole context of that conversation is Peter saying, um, you're, you're fussed about why we healed this man or how we healed this man. And so the context of Peter talking about salvation has much, just as much to do with physical salvation and healing as it does to do with spiritual salvation and healing. And so the salvation that we're introduced to in Jesus in, uh, as a baby in the manger is much more than just uh, the spiritual. It is all of salvation. And of course, we have him uh, known as Messiah, and the shepherds would know the idea of who the Messiah was. From, for example, Isaiah 40 through to 53, we read all about the, the servant of the Lord and this idea that they would know who the angel was referencing. And then he's called Lord, and there's this sense that there's another ruler that is coming into play here, that the kingdom of God is now at play. There's a new rule, and Jesus is the king. So there's this wonderful um, uh, description of God being for the people, of speaking to the people in this setting of, of the angel making this announcement to the shepherds. And then after the birth of Jesus, as you read through Luke chapter 2, we have Joseph and Mary going to the temple uh, eight days later, and he is Jesus is circumcised. They name him Jesus, exactly what the angel Gabriel told Mary that they should do. And there's, there's nothing glamorous about these verses, uh, verses 21 to 24 in Luke 2. But there's this wonderful depiction of Joseph and Mary being obedient to, uh, to the norms of their day, to their faith. Um, these were the requirements of the law to take your firstborn to the temple, to be consecrated to the Lord, and, and to be, they, they name him. And there's these wonderful connections 
that Luke is bringing out for us uh, to the boy Samuel in 1 Samuel chapter 1 and 2 of Samuel being presented at the temple, of Samuel being in the temple. And just like Samuel was taken to the tabernacle, Jesus is taken to the temple. Just like we have Hannah's song uh, in 1 Samuel 1, we have Mary's song in um, Luke chapter 1. And then I want to read a verse for you about Samuel. And tell me if this sounds familiar to you. Uh, 1 Samuel 2.26 Meanwhile, the boy Samuel grew taller and grew in favor with the Lord and with the people. Sounds a little bit like Luke 2.52 where Luke tells us that Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and with all the people. There's this wonderful ordinariness about obedience to what God calls us to. Mary and Joseph were just going about their normal, obedient lives, and God works through them. Zachariah was going about his normal, everyday duties, and God speaks to him. There's nothing glamorous about obedience, but there's this sense that through our obedience, God will continue to do extraordinary things. And it's wonderful to see Luke laying this out for us. And then we come to another pairing here. So you do have the pairing of the shepherds um, being contrasted with uh, the political leaders of the day. And God actually speaks to the shepherds. And then you have another pairing here taking place in verses 25 to 40. And that is with Simeon and Anna. And Simeon is described as an old man who was faithful and who was led by the Holy Spirit. And Luke is going to bring and weave the Holy Spirit into his gospel over and over and over again. And later this year, we're actually going to do a series based on Luke on who the Holy Spirit is and how we might understand him at work in our lives today. And so you have the old man Simeon and then you have the prophet or the prophetess Anna, that we're introduced to. And Simeon has quite a bit to say to Joseph and Mary <clears throat> in his obedience and waiting on God. Um, he's able to meet Jesus. And it's like this culmination of his life of waiting for God to, to do something. And he says to Mary, and he says to God in celebration, I have seen your salvation. There's that word salvation again that we should pay attention to. And then he says to Mary that Jesus is the glory of all Israel. So in verse uh, 32, he's a light to reveal God to the nations and he's the glory of your people, Israel. And to Joseph and Mary, um, the sense of glory is, is something that is going to, I think, perplex them a little bit. If you remember when the angel showed up to the shepherds, we're told that the glory of the Lord shone all around the shepherds in the sky. And now Simeon is using that same word to describe Jesus. So at the end of this chapter, Joseph and Mary, when Jesus is a boy, uh, they go to the temple with Jesus. And we read about Jesus getting uh, them losing Jesus uh, at the temple. And uh, I'm actually going to do a little bit of extra teaching on that that you can refer to in the sermon notes. If you go to the sermon notes, there'll be a link there that will take you to another short little video where I talk a little bit about Jesus at the temple and what that means uh, in what Luke is portraying for us. So not for now, but for uh, if you want to do some extra, you can click on that and watch it. 
Simeon's words to Mary are that Jesus is going to disturb all of Israel. Some people are going to hate him. Some are going to love him. Some are going to follow him. And some are going to work against him. And Mary, this son of yours is going to cause pain in your life too. A sword is going to pierce your heart too. And these have got to be just uh, really perplexing and confusing words for Mary. Even the mother of Jesus at times had to wrestle with what it meant for him to be her Savior and Lord. And I think there's comfort in here for us to realize that in following Jesus, there's going to be times when, when we are led into, uh, into difficulty in what it means to follow him. And yet great, uh, great experiences and growth in our lives. And this was as true for Mary as it would be for anybody else. Throughout this narrative in Luke 2, you see God showing up, but to specific people and speaking to specific people. And, and you, have, you have God appearing to Zechariah and then to Mary, and then to, uh, in chapter 2, to the angels. And then the angels tell the people. And then we have Simeon and Anna that we're introduced to. We're introduced to other religious leaders at the temple who would have been circumcising Jesus. There's a whole cross-section of the populace. And God has shown up. And, and He's done it under the nose of the political leaders and some of the religious leaders who, who just weren't able to comprehend what God was up to. And it was the ordinary, everyday circumstances of people that God shows up and does extraordinary things. And I think it's worth paying attention to the contrasts that are happening here. What God is saying, to whom God is saying it, who is recognizing Jesus, and who is missing out on what is taking place. And I just want to ask you, as you read through Luke chapter 2, with whom do you identify? Who is the Holy Spirit drawing out to you to say, pay attention to this because there's some learning in here for you? And where is God revealing himself to you today? But maybe you're not recognizing him because you're looking for him somewhere else with someone else. If you're looking for Jesus, you might find him in the ordinary spaces of ordinary people. But the things he'll be doing are nothing ordinary. And I wonder if you're ready for that. Let's pray. You entered into this scene of humanity so long ago, God. You entered into the ordinariness of life. You used ordinary people going through their ordinary lives who were living obedient to you the best way that they knew how. And then you began to do extraordinary things. Thank you for this introduction to Jesus. The reminder that Jesus is not just about a quiet nativity scene with some sage-like shepherds, 
but that he is, you are intent on, on not only bringing salvation in a spiritual sense for all of humanity, but of bringing salvation in every way and every means possible. I'm grateful for how Luke um, shows how the kingdom of God will upend the political scenes of the day, not just of this time, but in our own day as well. I'm thankful, God, that we can recognize you through the ordinary spaces and places of ordinary people. And may that be a reminder for us of those of us um, so often who run after power, who run after wealth, who run after greatness, thinking that somehow the meaning of life is found in these. And yet so often... Uh, You remind us again and again in the kingdom of God, it's the last who are first. It's the poor who are blessed. It's those who are mourn who receive comfort. So continue to open our eyes to who you are, to what you're doing, like you do here in Luke 2. May that continue to be true for us in every single day of our lives. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you want, go to the notes section and you can hear a little bit more about Jesus at the temple with his parents and the conversation that he has with them and the significance of it. We will see you uh, next week. Bye for now.